This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. And good evening from New York. I'm Anderson Cooper. And from Washington, I'm Caitlin Collins. And you saw there a seething President Biden just wrapping up a press conference dealing with special counsel Robert Hur's report on his handling of classified documents where President Biden denied a critical part of that report. And the report clears him legally, but could damage him, obviously, politically, including a passage which reads, and I quote, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview with him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Joining us now is Kate Bedingfield, who served as communications director in the Biden White House, David Axelrod, who worked with then-Vice President Biden as senior advisor to President Obama, and former Trump communications director Alyssa Farr Griffin. All three are now senior political commentators. Also with us, former federal prosecutor and best-selling author Jeffrey Tubin. David Axelrod, let me start with you. Uh, is that the press conference the president should have had? Well, look, I understand the concept of why he had the press conference, because this thing was uh, red hot and it was out there and he felt he needed to and his people felt he needed to respond to it. Um, whether the response was adequate or whether it creates more problems, I think, is another question. He did contradict elements of the special counsel's report, and that undoubtedly will uh, go on. And, and then he was uh, quite angry not just at the release uh, or at the characterizations of the special counsel, but of what some of the reporters were asking him. It is a fact that this is a problem for the president. The, Anderson, the most damaging uh, things that can happen in politics are things that reinforce a meme that's out there that is hurting you. And the central meme that is hurting the president is this issue of age. It's a big barrier. People don't give him credit for what he's done. They blame him for everything <laughs> that happens. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with their characters or their feelings about his age. So it's not wise to say to a reporter, that's your interpretation. It's not. They, there's reams of polling material about this. So I'm not sure. I mean, he was feisty and energetic. I'll, I'll, I'll say that, but I'm not sure that he solved his problem tonight. Yeah. Kate Bedingfield, I'm wondering what you thought you worked uh, for uh, for the, the president. He, he did call uh, C. He named Sisi the, the president of Egypt. He said it was the president of Mexico. Um, what did you make of of that appearance? Well, overall, I mean, I, I agree with David. It was he needed to do it. Uh, I think it was it was smart for them to recognize that the narrative was not in a great place, that he needed to show some urgency on it. I think a couple of things that he did that were effective that I heard. So, you know, he took on directly one of the uh, the kind of pieces, the editorializing uh, that her did that is, was getting traction, the suggestion that he didn't remember the year that his son died. I thought he took that on really effectively. He showed a lot of very genuine emotion. I worked for him for a very long time. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, everything about what he was saying there and feeling there uh, is very real. And so he, I thought he took that on directly, which was effective. You know, I think the second thing he did that was effective here is, is he did show a little swagger. And I think that the swagger does kind of combat the age. I mean, you know, I think you never want to be defensive and you don't want to seem angry or like you're riled up. But, you know, I do think in getting a little combative with reporters, he's showing, you know, I, I've got a lot of energy. I got a lot. Of, I've, I've I am. I've got a lot of life in me. And so I think him doing that uh, was a good thing. Uh, Alyssa, sure. 
Listen, I don't think the president did himself any favors in that speech. Um, he undercut two of his biggest messages. The adults are back in charge by sort of being dismissive of, yes, he was exonerated. He's not going to be convicted or tried for this. But there's some really damning pieces of information in here. He had deliberations around Afghan war plans with him. He spoke to a biographer about classified documents who didn't have clearance. This showed a decent level of reckless mishandling of classified information. And he, he said in that that he didn't. He, he said that he didn't. Um, so I think there was a dismissiveness to the seriousness of this. And then on the other hand, they were using this bizarre line to say he stepped away from an international crisis, the biggest attack on our ally Israel since the Holocaust, to go deal with a self-inflicted investigation by the Department of Justice. How is that supposed to inspire confidence? I, I don't know why he went back out. He already said most of this at, um, in Virginia today. But this is this is becoming a five alarm fire for the White House. If to Mexico, Mexico, where did that come from? I mean, that's the only thing anyone's going to remember from this. I, you know, he was exonerated here. And, and I think it's an easy call that he was exonerated. And I think legally, he's never had a problem with this because the issue of criminal intent was quite clearly absent in the Biden case. And certainly, according to the accusations in the um, in, in the Jack Smith indictment, is very much present in the, in the Trump case. I think they are very different. And the report even spelled this out. But Mexico? I mean, politically, how do you explain that? And if I may say, if we weren't living in the Donald Trump era where there's 91 indictments and he woefully mishandled classified documents and he didn't cooperate with investigations, if this was 10 years ago, this would still be a huge story. Yes, he was exonerated, but there are details in here that show just a level of recklessness and negligence. And I think it was far worse than what the public oh, expected. I don't buy that at all. I, I mean, you know, classified information is so over over. People overclassify so much. Retired people take classified information all the time. I, I, I think legally this is a non-issue. The issue is Biden's age, and I, that didn't seem Caitlin, very helpful uh, to me. Caitlin? Well, can I just say, I mean, on this point about Mexico, I mean, he misspoke on the name of the country in the context of a larger answer about what he's doing to try to get humanitarian assistance into Gaza. So is it a perfect answer? Is it great to misspeak? No, it's never great to misspeak. I, I promise everybody on this panel right now has misspoken and said the wrong name or the wrong uh, you know, the wrong date in a conversation. But, you know, he's he's explaining uh, in great detail the work that he's doing to try to ease that crisis. And so I don't think that we should uh, lose sight of the fact that he's explaining the work that he's doing as president uh, and get so hung up on on one word. Is it is it perfect? I'm sure. Does he wish he had said Egypt rather than Mexico? I'm sure he does. But again, I think, you know, misstating one word. Uh, I don't think we should overcrank on that. MJ Lee, you were in the room. I'm wondering what you uh, made up today. Yeah, I mean, Anderson, this was a President Biden, that seemed pretty ticked off, to be honest with you. Uh, he was ticked off about the special counsel report and particularly coverage of it. Uh, he said, even though uh, there's language in there that says he did willfully retain some of these classified documents, he said uh, there's also language that says contrary and that coverage should reflect that. Uh, he uh, mentioned specifically one part of the interview and the report where Robert Herr asked him about uh, the death of his son and when that happened. And he said, uh, how 
dare he raise that? It's none of your business. Uh, he was also clearly uh, ticked off about the questions that this report and all of the memory issues that this report raises, uh, all of the questions that uh, will get fueled even more uh, about uh, the concerns about his age, the concerns about his mental acuity. And he was pretty ticked off when I asked my question uh, to him, uh, which was uh, the fact that you know, he has been saying for a while when people have raised concerns about his age, watch me. Well, a lot of American people who have been watching are making clear that they have concerns about his age. They think he is too old. So why does it have to be him? Uh, when I asked that question, uh, he said, you know, this is your opinion. This isn't anybody else's opinion. Public polling clearly suggests that this is a serious concern that a lot of people have. So, you know, I took this as a, a president who uh, clearly wanted to sort of get out there, uh, show this sort of uh, fighting side to him. And we know in conversations that we've had with uh, Biden advisors, people who know him really well, that they think that they uh, he does sort of well in that setting when he's sort of shouting that uh, sort of fighting. Uh, and fighting back at questions, fighting back at the concerns. So I just wonder if there was uh, sort of this opportunity that the White House saw to put him in that setting, uh, take uh, some of these difficult questions that they expected that he would have. But uh, I know you were talking about this with your panel. The fact that in the very press conference uh, where he was getting asked a lot of questions about his age, his memory issues, uh, he made this uh, important mistake, this notable mistake, saying uh, president of Mexico, Sisi, that clearly didn't help his cause. Uh, but again, I think this was a president that uh, wanted to sort of uh, use his own words to address everything that has happened today. Uh, this White House and this president, they know that these questions about age, his memory, his misspeaks, his missteps, they're not going away anytime soon. Yeah, and you referenced the, the, the moment where he talked about his, his son in, in the report that it, it references his son and that the former president, uh, according to the report, couldn't in that moment remember the, the, the date of it. Uh, let's play what uh, the president said tonight. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. I don't need anyone, I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. David Axelrod, you had said that you thought that was a moment that was effective uh, and clearly, obviously, very real and emotional. Oh, absolutely. Look. I, I, when I saw the report, honestly, that was the hardest part to comprehend because anyone who knows Joe Biden and anyone who's watched Joe Biden knows just how impactful the loss of his son was to him. And so uh, and I thought that was very genuine and very powerful. Um, you know, it's the rest of the stuff that was a little worrisome and, uh, you know, just uh, uh, responding to Kate. It is true. All of us make mistakes. Uh at times and misstate things. And that is, we're, we're human beings. The problem is this has become a real thing. Now, every time the president does that, it becomes a story. It becomes the thing and it goes viral on social media where he's getting pounded on this age issue, particularly among younger people. So uh, that is 
that is a stubborn problem that is an obstacle to get, uh, uh, you know, in his campaign moving forward. So, Dave, what do, I mean, Kate, uh, as somebody who worked in, in, in the, the White House, I mean, from a campaign standpoint, what does that mean in terms of putting him out, going out there? We heard in the earlier hour, you know, commentators saying that he needs to get out there more. People need to see him as being vital. Um, is that what the campaign's going to look like? I think that's what it should look like. I think this I think it argues to put him out more, not less. I think the more people see him, the more they hear him describing what it is he's doing, what the goals he's trying to achieve, the more they see him interacting with people, you know, out on the campaign trail as the campaign heats up. Obviously, some of his best moments are when he is talking one on one or in small groups with people where he, you know, shows an incredible amount of empathy and understanding for their lives. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the more he's out there, the better. It also reduces the amount of focus on every, uh, you know, every individual misspeak. Again, people who uh, essentially speak publicly for a living, of course, they're going to misspeak from time to time. So, you know, the more he's out showcasing what he's fighting for, what he's achieved. And again, that contrast with Donald Trump. I mean, we've sort of in this conversation, we've sort of lost a little bit uh, the some of the biggest news from this report today, which was the you know special counsel talking about the very clear differences between the way Donald Trump essentially obstructed uh, the investigation into his own handling classified documents and and uh, you know willfully uh, mishandled them uh, versus uh, you know what Biden did, which he said was uh, was much more about um, uh, essentially unintentional. Uh, moving of these documents. So again, I think the more Biden goes out, the more people see him, the more they see uh, his vigor and also his passion for what he's working on, um, the better. And again, the less focus on each individual uh, misspeak. By the way, it was outrageous that her put in some of that stuff in this report. That had no place in that. There is no reason why this report had to be 300 pages. There is no reason why this fairly straightforward case had to be treated this way. And the uh, I mean, this was just like what James Comey did to Hillary Clinton when he supposedly cleared her of the use of classified information and then talked about how reckless and terrible she was. You know, pro the job of prosecutors is to put up or shut up. If you have a case, bring your case. If you don't have a case, shut the hell up or say as little. Do you think he's playing this. politics? I absolutely do. You know, Merrick Garland picked a Republican prosecutor, a someone who worked for Donald Trump. I don't know why Merrick Garland chose him. Democrats seem to have this idea that if they pick Republicans for these tough jobs, they'll get some credit for it. It didn't work with James Comey, who appointed by a Democrat. It didn't work um, with her. And I think this was... Um, there was no case to be brought here, but her did his best to damage Biden politically. Now, unfortunately for Biden, Biden didn't help himself today in his response. But the idea that this was put in this report, you know, that he was elderly and that, that didn't belong in that report. So some of it did feel very gratuitous. I do agree with that. But I do caution. I see an emerging narrative on, from Democrats that this is a partisan investigation by the DOJ. This was a Republican and a Trump appointee. So therefore, he's putting this in. The message of the Democrats has been we should trust our institutions. We can trust the Department of Justice. It's not weaponized. Republicans are misrepresenting it. And I'm seeing a bit of that coming in response to this report, not from you specifically, but some of the Democrats that are uh, defending Biden yeah. tonight. Uh, Kate Bedingfield, thank you. David Axrod, Jeff Tubin, Elizabeth Griffin, MJ Lee, as well. Let's go back to uh, Caitlin in D.C. Caitlin. 
Thanks, Anderson. I'm joined here by Audie Cornish, host of the Assignment podcast, Ellie Honig, Ashley Allison, and Doug High, all here with us. Ashley, let me start with you because uh, let's start on the age thing because I think what's important here is the context that this is not just one moment that this happened where he, he mixed up Mexico and Egypt as he just did there. This comes with a lot of backdrop and a lot of concerns, and it's not just one moment in the report either. Also, in the last week, he, he's referenced dead European leaders who haven't been alive since the 90s, confusing them with, with current or, or almost current leaders. I, I think it's a bigger picture of the questions, and clearly the White House felt the need to address that, and that's why they made him come out for these abruptly scheduled remarks tonight. Yeah, a couple of points. First, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both old Americans, and there's nothing that we're going to be able to do in this election cycle to change that narrative except go directly at it. And um, I think, I mean, I hear a lot of people tonight saying, I don't think it was a good move. Well, you can't just hide because that's the, uh, we're not in a normal political media atmosphere. You have to Voters want a fighter. Voters want to say, you come at me and you talk about my son and me not remember when my son died. I'm going to tell you something. And so will it be the thing that folks decide in November whether or not if Donald Trump and Joe Biden on age? Probably not, because their age actually cancels them out. It's who is going to stand up for me, who is going to fight. There were moments that when he mixed up Mexico and um, the president of Egypt. But I will argue in his remarks that young voters, the thing that they were listening to was what he said about Gaza. And that he was he went as far as I have ever heard him say to without saying the word ceasefire. He said, I want an extended pause on hostages. That's what young people are actually looking at, not whether or not he mixed up the name of the president. They want to know what are your actual policies. And I'd be curious to see what the polling shows if they get out there with this message, if it gets more traction. His age isn't going to change, so he has to take it on straight ahead. He could do it with a little comedy, the way he did it with the Fox reporter, talking about, you know, my biggest memory loss was that I even let you speak because we know that antagonistic um, behavior. It might not work for all voters, but he can't hide on this. Doug, is that the case? Because when you look at polling, voters way more register that concern of age with Biden than they do with Trump, even though Trump is, as Ashley noted, just a few years behind him. Uh, That's very true. And you hear that from younger voters. You hear it from older voters. My 90-year-old aunt in Little Silver, New Jersey today said, this guy's too old. And we hear this over and over again. And the problem for Biden is, yes, the issue's not going away because Biden's not going away. And every time he presents himself, there's a problem like this. You know, uh, David Axelrod was praising earlier when he invoked um, when he evoked his son, Beau, what I heard was he mentioned the rosary from Our Lady of, and then he didn't name the church because he got stuck on a moment there. It reminds me very much of in 1994 in the fall going to see Frank Sinatra in concert at Meriwether Post, not far from here. And one minute come fly with me was amazing. A few minutes later, he could barely remember the words from my way. And what did what did we remember? that he couldn't remember the words to my way. This is going to be a recurring problem for Biden. And ultimately, the Biden uh, White House right now is saying three things. One, hey, a lot of people forget things. Two, he was slightly less responsible than Donald Trump. And three, there was a lot going on in the world with Israel. So let's cut him some slack. That's not strong messaging. Audie, what did you hear in that? I mean, I guess I'm the only one who's not as alarmed (laughs) because I'm looking at it kind of holistically. This report comes out and this line is in it and they have to address it right away. There's no scenario where you let that sit. And in terms of media management, you want to be out there because what happened after he had his speech, we played a clip of him saying, how dare you 
speak about my son that way. We didn't play a clip of him, you know, saying Mexico instead of Egypt. And I think people take these things in a different way than they used to. They're not sitting home at the couch waiting for him to speak. What they're going to do is see a number of clips. And your point is very well taken, that essentially there's a lot of young people who have been waiting for him to speak in some kind of striking way about Israel and Gaza, and specifically him saying, I think they've gone overboard, using that kind of language that's going to be very striking in the social media space. And also seeing all the reporters barking at him, yelling at him, saying, rah, 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 and then he's got quick, fast, snappy, defensive replies. I don't necessarily think, again, generationally, they're going to be like, whoa, he was sarcastic. I like a nicer Biden. That hasn't been what they've been asking for. So I'm just going to put it out there. I know everyone has said that this was bad for a number of reasons, but I would challenge our thinking on this and that people don't take it in the way we do, nitpicking at it because that's our job. They're going to get these emotional clips and they're going to walk away with his emotion, which was very intense, almost enraged, use, use the word seething. And people may hear particular clips and think, hmm, maybe it was justifiably so. Yeah, I think some people, you know, covering Biden, you realize he does have a temper. His whole staff, his allies, Kate Bedingfield, I'm sure, would acknowledge that, that it is something that is known about him. But if this report is saying he's Mr. Magoo, he can't come out and be Mr. Magoo. He's got to come out and be punchy and be the guy you're talking about. This report, and a key part of this, Ellie, to go back to what Jeffrey Tubin was saying there, the special counsel, Robert Hurd, did have to issue a report. Those are his regulations. It was this lengthy report, which we were expecting. Was that him trying to explain why? Why he didn't charge Biden, why that was going to be so long. What was your read on what that on what he said? So first of all, this report is required by the special counsel regulations. And if we want a precedent of somebody issuing a very long special counsel report without recommending a charge, look no further than Robert Mueller, who issued a 400 page special counsel report and did not specifically say, I recommend criminal charges. He and was testified. ambiguous and testified. Let me be clear about this. This is a very close call. I have written and read a thousand of these documents. They're called prosecution memos. You lay out the facts and you say, here's my recommendation as to charging or not charging. Joe Biden is correct that Donald Trump's conduct was worse, but his conduct was still very close to the line. Here are the facts. Joe Biden, established by this report, Joe Biden retained sensitive classified documents after he left the vice presidency. Marked the, classified? Or? Yes, marked classified, highest level, top secret SCI. They related to our international affairs, to war plans, to foreign relations. He knew it. He knew it. He's on tape after he's out of the vice presidency saying to his autobiographer, the classified documents are in the basement. He knew it. But he just denied that. That's, exactly. That, that so was that's, a key part of the report. It's the second sentence in the report, and he just denied sharing that with the ghostwriter. And I yep. just looked at this closely. Uh, they had recorded conversations between Biden and this ghostwriter. Exactly. That is what blew my mind about Joe Biden's statement. Two major things he just outright contradicts or is contradicted by, however you look at this, this report. There are two things he said that are completely the opposite of what Robert Herr found. And who do you believe is up to, I guess, the individual consumer. First, Joe Biden says, I did not act willfully. Willfully just means voluntarily, intentionally. Well, the second sentence of this whole summary says, President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials. The facts in here show it was willful. He knew, he talked about it. And the second thing he says is, I did not disclose classified documents to my ghostwriter. Page three says that he did that. It says, 
Mr. Biden shared information, including some classified information from those notebooks with his ghostwriter. What is the distinction in, um, and I want you to make your point, but what's the distinction in what he said about, well, they were at my house because we saw the picture, they're in the garage, it's that box of documents. And he said Trump's were at Mar-a-Lago, you know, yeah. where people come by. It is true there was an estimation that I think 40,000, 48,000 guests came through Mar-a-Lago in that time period. How does the Justice Department see it? To me, that is an irrelevant distinction. They're both in unsecured facilities. I didn't understand what he was driving at there. Maybe he was saying there's less foot traffic. That is barely a factor in, in my, what my consideration would have been here as a prosecutor. And ultimately, what Robert Hur says in this report is essentially the technical elements of a crime, it appears Robert Hur is saying, were met. But what he ends up doing is looking at the soft factors. And you're allowed to do that. You have to do that as a prosecutor. And he takes into consideration things like what he says, and maybe this is overstated, maybe not, I'll leave that to the political folks, but he says essentially, Joe Biden would have created a sympathetic picture in front of a jury. He had memory issues, he had age issues, and that goes into, did he, was he able to form the mental intent here? And also look, the fact that Joe Biden cooperated, it's not a free pass. You can't break the law and then say, well, I cooperated, it cancels what I did before, but you can take that into account as a prosecutor. It's perfectly appropriate to say, from the moment we engaged with them, they were cooperative, and to give that a plus on the scale. Is that it has, though, given that the entire framing in terms that this is a comparative scandal, right. meaning it's about what Trump did versus what Biden did or yeah. Pence did. So fundamentally, the thing that Trump is still in trouble for is not cooperating. So it, I know in right. isolation you're making a, a very specific argument, but politically he's going to look out in the public and said, hey, look, fundamentally yeah. I did what was asked, he didn't, and that's why he's still in trouble. It's a great question, and, and you're very much in line with what the special counsel writes in here. No question Donald Trump's conduct is worse than this. There's, there's no way to spin that any other way. Robert Hur, the special counsel, goes out of his way in this document to lay out the ways that Donald Trump's conduct is worse. And the primary distinction is exactly that. Joe Biden cooperated and Donald Trump obstructed. And that makes a big difference to prosecutors. But is this not, a, is this not helpful to, to Trump's team, though, that oh, is still is. handling the class? Because we have a tr former Trump attorney waiting in the Yes, wings, it's helpful. Isn't this going to be something that they could potentially use? Let me tell you two ways it's helpful. One is just atmospherically, right? We, we've all seen a thousand times the photos of documents strewn around the bathroom in the stage of Mar-a-Lago. Now there's similar looking photos in this report. But here's the technical way that Donald Trump's team is going to use this. Mark my words. Donald Trump's team in the federal Jack Smith classified documents case in Mar-a-Lago is going to bring a motion for what's called selective prosecution. Very, very hard to win these motions. What you have to do is show a judge somebody else did essentially the same thing I did. I was prosecuted. He was not. Now Donald Trump has a basis to make that motion. So I'll just say, Everything you said, brilliant. You're a wonderful Thank lawyer. <laughs> and yet, most Americans are not going to read that report. Most Americans did not read the Mueller report. But what they will know is that Joe Biden was not charged with the crime because uh, Robert Hur decided that. And that Robert Hur also made editorial comments about his age. Those are the two takeaways. The question is, when Donald Trump's case comes up, will those still matter to people? Or will his case of not cooperating and the antics that we know Donald Trump will pull when he is up for trial will cancel out what Joe Biden did today? Everyone stand by. We have a lot more to get, catch up on as we are breaking down those abrupt remarks from the president there at the White House. Up next, also, today's historic oral arguments that happened at the Supreme Court. That has to do with keeping Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado under the 14th, 14th Amendment's insurrectionist clause. Lawrence Tribe and retired Judge Michael Ludig, who played a key role in that debate, will join Anderson after a quick break.
All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. It sounds awfully national to me, telling words during oral arguments today from Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, part of a chorus from her fellow justices signaling a deep skepticism for Colorado State Supreme Court decision barring Donald Trump from the ballot. In a moment, I'm going to talk to the two constitutional scholars, Lawrence Tribe and Judge Michael Ludig, who have been a key part of this debate uh, over this. But first, he Paula Reed. In one of the most anticipated Supreme Court cases of the year, the justices signaling they will side with Donald Trump on the question of whether he's eligible for the 2024 ballot. The former president did not attend Thursday's arguments. Most justices didn't address his role in the January 6th insurrection, instead focusing on legal arguments around the 14th Amendment. Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, an experienced Supreme Court advocate, argued Trump isn't covered by the so-called insurrectionist ban. A ruling from this court that affirms the decision below would not only violate term limits, but take away the votes of potentially tens of millions of Americans. And argued January 6th was not even an insurrection. Only one justice asked about whether it was. So riot the point is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. Jason Murray argued for Colorado voters who won their case at the lower court. By engaging in insurrection against the Constitution, President Trump disqualified himself from public office. States have the power to ensure that their citizens' electoral votes are not wasted on a candidate who is constitutionally barred from holding office. But the justices appeared much more skeptical. In an ominous sign, the chief justice said Murray's arguments were at war with history. That seems to be a position that is at, uh, at war with the whole thrust of the 14th Amendment and very ahistorical. The whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power. And question the consequences of a ruling in favor of Colorado and other states then following suit. It'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence. Even liberal justice Elena Kagan asked this. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. It was Murray's first time arguing before the high court, and he engaged in several contentious exchanges with the justices, and even got a scolding from Justice Gorsuch, who he once clerked for. No, nevertheless, they were no, into that no, office. we're talking about Section 3. And Please don't change the hypothetical. And even though the arguments seemed to go well for Trump, 
He still wanted the last word, addressing reporters outside Mar-a-Lago. Can you take the person that's leading everywhere and say, hey, we're not going to let you run? You know, I think that's pretty tough to do, but uh, I'm leaving it up to the Supreme Court. And Paula Reid joins me now. Do we know how long it's going to take to get a decision? It's unclear. We know the chief justice is under enormous pressure to build consensus across party lines, come up with something, maybe a narrow ruling that would have bipartisan support. If you listen to the arguments today, it appears that that is possible. And it's important, Anderson, because we know this court is under scrutiny for concerns about ethics and partisanship. But something like that also takes time. And it's unclear if the chief justice will be able to accomplish this and get out an opinion before Super Tuesday, which is just a month away. All right, Paula Reed, thank you. I want to get perspective now from perhaps the two best known voices behind the argument that the 14th Amendment bars the former president from the 2024 ballot. Both distinguished constitutional scholars, retired federal appeals court judge Michael Ludig and Harvard Law School's Lawrence Tribe, whose latest book is titled To End a Presidency, the Power of Impeachment. Professor Tribe, I'm wondering what your takeaway was from today's historic hearing. Well, it's quite clear that the Colorado decision to exclude Donald Trump from the primary ballot is going to be overturned, perhaps nine to nothing, perhaps eight to one. But what I took away from it was quite a different lesson. The two members of the court who were my former students, the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan, whom you quoted just a couple of minutes ago, saying, isn't it amazing that just one or two states might determine who becomes president? Where have they been all this time? When they studied constitutional law, there was something they learned about the Electoral College. I doubt that they've forgotten about it, but to listen to the argument, you'd think they had. The fact is that the court is engaged in sort of selective remembering and selective forgetting. They seem to have forgotten that the way our Constitution is structured under Article 2, it is the states that basically run even the election for president. And it is true, as the Chief Justice pointed out, that the thrust of the 14th Amendment was to give the federal government more power and the states less, but it didn't change the basic structure of who decides mm. who gets on the ballot. Now, if I just take a step back, let me just say what Judge Ludig and I wrote back in August of last year was that Donald Trump is constitutionally disqualified by the most democracy-protecting provision of the Constitution. It's there to prevent someone who swears to support the Constitution and then mounts an insurrection against it to prevent that person from coming back into power. We said that under that provision, Donald Trump is disqualified. Nothing the Supreme Court decides in this case is likely to contradict that. They're mm -hmm. likely to say that the way Colorado did it at this stage, when they are simply deciding who runs for the primary election, that is not permissible. But they are simply kicking the can down the road because when people argue that he is disqualified by the Constitution, either at the stage of the general election or when Congress meets in January of 2025 to count the electoral votes, this problem will rise again mm. and the court will not have avoided chaos. It will simply have postponed it.
Judge Ludig, I'm wondering what your takeaway was. I mean, certainly you heard the skepticism from many of the justices today about the, the Colorado's uh, court decision. Anderson, I, the first thing I would say is that I agree with every single substantive constitutional point that Professor Tribe just made. Uh, it's rare, Anderson, that, that you can tell what the Supreme Court is going to do from oral argument. But sometimes you can tell what the court is not going to do. And this is one of those times. The Supreme Court of the United States is not going to decide whether the former president is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Not now, and I don't believe ever. To that kicking the can down the road, Professor Tribe is exactly right. Under our Constitution, the states have the power under the electors and elections clauses to administer and conduct federal elections, including the election for the President of the United States. That's all the Supreme Court needs to know to say that the state of Colorado had the constitutional power to disqualify the former president. But as Professor Tribe says, that they've now kicked it down the road, if not kicked it off the road forever. In particular, if they've only kicked it down the road, there will come a time when the general election is approaching that the Supreme Court will have to decide the case. Mm. And that would be a less timely decision than it would have been to make that decision today. But what the Supreme Court is hoping, without any question whatsoever, is that it will never have to decide this question. They're hoping and banking on the fact that Donald Trump will not win the presidency because in their view and in the argument that was properly made by his lawyer, <clears throat> Section 3 only disqualifies a person from holding the office. By its terms, it does not disqualify one from running for the office in either the primary or the general. But if the Supreme Court waits, and it does come to pass that the former president is elected president of the United States in 2024, then the Supreme Court of the United States will have to address whether that newly elected president of the United States is disqualified under the 14th Amendment. Mm. That is a recipe for national chaos. That, I mean, that seems, how would they even, you're saying if, if Trump was actually elected, uh, then the Supreme Court would have to decide whether the 14th Amendment uh, would prevent him from actually assuming office. That's exactly correct, Anderson, because Section 3, by its terms, only prevents a person who engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution from holding the office. And, and indeed, the, the former president's lawyers actually argued in their reply brief that the Supreme Court of the United States never will have the power to decide the former president's disqualification. Right. Why? They argued because 
the Congress of the United States can at any time remove the disqualification. And so they literally argued to the Supreme Court, one, the court does not have the power to decide the case, this issue at all. Right. And it certainly can't decide it until 2029 right. after the chaos. president would be out of office if he were elected. Yeah. Just, Lord, Professor Tribe, just briefly, were you... I, you know, nobody really thought, or a lot of people, a lot of observers thought, and it seems like it was the case other than Justice Jackson, the court largely avoided discussion of whether January 6th was an insurrection. I assume that's, you anticipated that. Right, except I do want to add, January 6th is only the climax. What we didn't hear today and are going to hear going forward is whether the president who was then the president, whether Donald Trump orchestrated a coup against the Constitution through fake electoral ballots, fake electoral slates, an elaborate plot. If that plot had succeeded, they wouldn't even have had to storm the Capitol. Mm. It's the entire course of conduct yeah. that was an insurrection against the Constitution. The court could have made that clear and that would have solved at a national level what is otherwise still going to bedevil people through different definitions of insurrection. Mm. Professor Tribe, I appreciate your time. Judge Michael Ludig as well. Thank you so much. I'll go back to Caitlin. Thanks, Anderson. Of course, we heard from the former president a moment ago. He had this to say about what happened in court today, which I should note was an appearance that he chose not to attend. I thought it was very... It's a very beautiful process. I hope that democracy in this country will continue. I thought the presentation today was a very good one. I think it was well received. I hope it was well received. And I'm joined now by a former attorney for Donald Trump, Jim Trustee, who we've seen multiple times here before. What did you make of how the arguments went today and how each side argued them? I think the arguments actually went reasonably well. I mean, both of these lawyers are people that clerked for Supreme Court justices. They seem to be pretty at ease, pretty at home. Uh, there was different levels of kind of hostile fire, as, you, as uh, we heard before, in terms of Justice Gorsuch uh, turning the tables on his own former law clerk for a minute. But it was not particularly aggressive. It wasn't what I would call an extra hot bench. Um, they got their points out. I, I thought there was some interesting areas that are really kind of different than the last two folks that Anderson How's was talking about. Well, you know, the, a couple of things. Number one is it's not a surprise at all to me that they didn't really get into the this thicket, this rabbit hole of what is insurrection and what was the proof. I mean, if you really, if you want to get to the, to the heart of, of what I think strikes a lot of people as wrong with that proceeding, it's not that they're all well-versed about Article 3, you know, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's this idea of having a mini trial, of having a, a political report serve as evidence with no real rules of evidence, having a sociologist come in and say, I know what Trump really meant. I mean, those are things that are kind of bizarre due process challenges. But if the Supreme Court goes on that, if they say we don't like the trial, then they keep the door open for every state to have its own trial and to get an assessment by the Supreme Court eventually. I think they're looking, or Roberts, I think, is looking for a, a kind of a foundational procedural thing that can shut all of this litigation down. And what was interesting to me, the one that had a lot of traction, is the idea of whether or not this part of, of the 14th Amendment even applies mm -hmm. to the president. And remember, the Colorado lower court 
said, I think he's an insurrectionist, but it doesn't apply to him. Uh, and the that takes us. versus the officer. Exactly. And it, what it does, it takes you into this really, I mean, it may be fascinating to nerds like me only, but literally you had justices talking about what happened in 1868, 69, 1870. How does that shed light on, you know, if Jefferson Davis ran for president of the, of the new, newly United States, what was going to happen? And, and to me, that's all fascinating history. What was interesting to me is, of all people, that Justice Jackson uh, weighed in on that. It was maybe a little hint. I heard it as if there was a little hint of disappointment in her voice, but she said, it really doesn't look like he was, he, the president, was supposed to be a part of this particular regulation. You know, she looked at it and said, he's not on the list. Even though she seemed to believe, and I don't want to obviously speak for her, but that she seemed to believe that he had maybe engaged in the insurrection, just not necessarily that this ban of this clause would apply to him, dating back to that conversation. She's basically tracking the lower court in Colorado. I mean, saying essentially, I, I have all sorts of problems with his conduct. That would be kind of what we infer from her comments but that I just don't think that this applies to him at all. And if that's the case, if the 14th Amendment literally stops itself at appointed officers, not at the president of the United States, then all the litigation just falls off. How different are the implications of what they do decide if they decide it on a technical procedural grounds or if they decide it on the merits? I think with a lot of the procedural grounds, they can amputate all of the rest of the litigation. Um, I think it was but just does it as, open up to further litigation in the future? Well, no, not particularly, but there are some avenues within the procedural that could still get there. I think Justice, Gore, uh, Justice Sotomayor was talking about some issues about federalism, whether states versus feds. And I think it, my read on it was she was setting up the possibility that you could still have litigation on this issue, but in federal court. Mm -hmm. So there may be an agreement that we don't want to get to the due process. We don't want to go one by one by one, you know, Maine, uh, Colorado, all these different states with different processes to talk about the trial. But there may be disagreement on the exact procedural basis that could shut this down. And as, you, as you're pointing out, some of it may not amputate all of the rest of the litigation. Some of it could. Donald Trump wasn't there today. As you know, we've talked recently since you've no longer represented him, but times when he's gone to court. How much of a difference do you think that makes when, when he's in the room with the attorneys making the arguments and when he's not? Yeah, I don't look, I think the last time we talked about it, I said I think it's good for him to be able to take things in firsthand. But it's not something where, you know, it's not a, an old gangster movie where all of a sudden the judges freak out because he's there. I mean, these are Supreme I meant Court. his attorneys more oh. act differently or maybe argue a little differently. I, I, I would hope hope that they don't really cater to the politics as much as just knowing I'm in front of the Supreme Court, highest court of the land, I've got to answer their questions and I have to have the best foot forward. So my impression, there was a couple of soundbite moments in terms of talking about insurrection. He disqualified himself, I think was the line. But really most of it was very much, uh, I think, responsibly reacting to the questions. You said not a hot bench. What does that tell you about how the court is approaching this? Do you think they kind of have made their decisions? Um, no, I mean, you know, lawyers that try to bank on the Supreme Court are going to go poor uh, quickly on those predictions. So I don't bet any money on it. But I, I do think that they I think there seemed to be a flavor of looking for a procedural slash foundational component that they can agree on to basically end this without talking about the trial for insurrection itself. Jim Trustee, always great to talk to you. We'll wait to see what they decide. Obviously, we have many more legal issues for the former president that we may talk about going forward. <laughs> Thanks right. for joining us here on set tonight. And of course, as we are looking at what has happened just in the last hour alone, the entire busy day, oral arguments that we've just been talking about that happened at the Supreme Court. Also, as we've been discussing, President Biden himself now weighing in 
in those abruptly scheduled remarks at the White House after a special counsel legally cleared him for mishandling classified documents, but also doing so in a way that created a political headache. The president began by talking about the legal aspect of that case. Let me say a few things before I take your questions. As you know, the special counsel released his findings today about their look into my handling of classified documents. <clears throat> I was pleased to see he reached a firm conclusion that no charges should be brought against me in this case. This was an exhaustive investigation going back more than 40 years, even into the 1970s when I was still a new United States Senator. <clears throat> the special counsel acknowledged I cooperated completely. I did not throw up any roadblocks. I sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give the special counsel what he needed, I went forward with a five-hour in-person, five-hour in-person interview over two days on October the 8th and 9th of last year, even though Israel had just been attacked by Hamas on the 7th and I was very occupied. It was in the middle of handling an international crisis. I was especially pleased to see special counsel make clear the stark distinction and difference between this case and Mr. Trump's case. The special counsel wrote, and I quote, several material distinctions between Mr. Trump's case and Mr. Biden's are clear, continuing to quote, most notably, after giving multiple chances to return classified documents to avoid prosecution, Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. According to the indictment, he not only refused to return the documents for many months, he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then to lie about it. In contrast, he went on to say Mr. Biden turned in classified documents to the National Archives and the Department of Justice, consented to the search of multiple locations, including his home, sat for a voluntary interview, and in other ways cooperated with the investigation, end of quote. In addition to the legal aspect of this report, you also saw President Biden address the parts of it talking about his age and his mental acuity. And we'll talk about that shortly here in this hour. But first, more on the Supreme Court taking up the Colorado Supreme Court's decision that barred Donald Trump from the ballot, citing the 14th Amendment. It got a very skeptical hearing and oral arguments today. We listened to them live. Justice Elena Kagan speaking volumes with this question to the attorney representing the plaintiffs here, Jason Murray. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? No, Your Honor, because ultimately it's this court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. And joining me now, New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, the House Republican Conference Chair and the highest ranking woman in House leadership. I should note, Congresswoman, thanks for being here 
on this busy day. I'm just curious what it says to you about the U.S. that the Supreme Court is even hearing an argument like this about a former president and whether or not he, he violated the insurrectionist clause. Well, it shows that the left and the Democrat Party and Joe Biden's campaign, they know they're going to lose at the ballot box, which is why you're seeing lawfare, you're seeing witch hunt after witch hunt, court case out after court case, going after Joe Biden's top political opponent, which is Donald Trump. And today was a very bad day for Joe Biden. It was a very bad day uh, in court for the left. It was a very bad day for the Colorado bogus court case. It was a very good day for President Trump. And it was a good day for the Constitution and the American people. The American people are going to make this decision in November, not radical bureaucrats from the state of Colorado, not radical judges or far-left prosecutors. But even though it, it's Republican and independent voters who brought this lawsuit in Colorado, I mean, I think that's an important part of this as well. The, this is a witch hunt against President Trump, and it is not uh, a coincidence that it is while President Trump is skyrocketing in the polls. Meanwhile, we saw a disastrous day for Joe Biden. Joe Biden started this week plummeting in the polls, the weakest polling for a modern-day president, an incumbent president, and yet you saw a, a feeble mental acuity lacking in the president of the United States just today. So this is a horrible day. It's a disastrous day for Joe Biden. It's a winning day for Let's Donald Trump, and the Supreme Court case is moment. likely to have multiple liberal justices that side with the conservative justices in this case, well, siding for the Constitution. So you think that the, the court here is going to rule and overturn the, the Supreme Court in Colorado's decision? Absolutely. And you heard questions, whether it was from Justice Elena Kagan, you heard multiple questions uh, from the liberal justices who are likely, I believe, this could be a 9-0, an 8-1, or a 7-2 case. So the next thing that the Supreme Court could potentially take up is the question of Donald Trump's argument, his assertion of presidential immunity. If you trust the Supreme Supreme Court's decision on the 14th Amendment, will you accept what they decide on presidential immunity as well? Well, certainly I will have something to say when the court makes that decision, um, but I already have put out a public statement. Uh, of course, the president has presidential immunity. You can't handcuff a sitting president of the United States for future presidents to go after them. It would not allow them to do their job in their official capacity. So that was a wrong-headed decision. I expect the Supreme Court will, over will overturn that as well. The appeals court decision. Yes. Does that extend to President Biden? Do you think that he can do whatever and not get prosecuted? as well? Well, that's what the Trump campaign put out. They said this is a very slippery slope because it means that if you're of an opposing party that you could go after your predecessor based upon policy disagreements or official acts. So that's why this is so egregious. And the reality is, Caitlin, the issues that the American people are concerned about, they're concerned about the border, they're concerned about the inflation crisis, they're concerned about the lack of leadership from the sitting president of the United States, Joe Biden. That's why they're going to make the decision to vote for President Trump at the polls. And that's why you're seeing, despite lawsuit after lawsuit, President Trump's numbers continue to go up because this is not a fair justice system right now. You see the justice system being weaponized against Joe Biden's top political opponent, and that's Donald Trump. I think the scathing report, though, that came out today that you referenced on President Biden's handling of documents would suggest that it's not weaponized because it was it was quite brutal in its assessment. But if he had it's been charged, prosecution, if Caitlin. he had been charged, would you would you make the argument that he shouldn't have been charged because well, he has first presidential of all, immunity? if you look at what the special counsel said it was a willful uh, willfully not abiding by rules when it comes to classified information willfully breaking the law and the only reason they're not pursuing prosecution is because of the lack of mental acuity of the president of the United States and this disastrous press conference cooperated no so no do you agree it's specifically have, because it's specifically because of the mental acuity that was pointed out in the document that's why you saw a panicked White House forced out a doddering unfit president of the United States for a disastrous press conference to try to clean it up
and it only did more damage. The reality, Caitlin, is Donald Trump is going to win this November, and Democrats are spiraling out of control because they see that Joe Biden continues to plummet. His polls are going to go down much further tomorrow based upon that horrific press conference today, and it's selective prosecution. The fact that it's not even a slap on the wrist when the prosecutor himself, the special counsel himself, it's not a slap on the wrist. But don't you think that if Donald Trump we're not pursuing that prosecution? But they talked. You know, a big part of this is that President Biden went and sat down with them for two days uh, over the course of two days. Obviously, that's the interview that you're talking about uh, where, where they talked about his age. Donald Trump hasn't cooperated. Don't you just think if he had cooperated, he could be hunt. in the same this situation? This is at the behest of Joe Biden. But if he had cooperated, that, don't you no, think no, he no. could be in the First same situation First of all, there is a difference here. Biden? President Trump has, according to the Presidential Records Act, he has dis declassification authorities. Joe Biden does not have that when he was Vice President of the United States. Joe Biden also had classified documents when he was a sitting senator. That does not it is, that is not covered by the Presidential Records Act. So to say... I've read the Presidential Records Act. It also doesn't give Trump the authority to just take documents and keep them in a ball. This was a raid on Mar-a-Lago, Caitlin, versus working with Joe Biden and saying he willfully broke the law but refusing to prosecute. But it that's is selective my point. prosecution. That's it is my selective point because prosecution. Trump did not hand over the documents no, for more than a year. Jim Trusty could tell you from that. The DOJ, just, from team. Joe Biden's DOJ, ordered by Merrick Garland not to prosecute against Joe Biden, even though it specifically found that he willfully broke the law. It was an and independent special counsel. And on top of that, the reason, the reason why they're not prosecuting is because they say he's mentally unfit to put in front, uh, to, to pursue that. That is unheard of, and it is selective prosecution. And it's why people inherently know across this country, if your last name happens to be Biden or Clinton, you get to live by a different set of rules than everyday average Americans. I think Hunter Biden would disagree with that. And I will note Robert Hunter Kerr Biden got the a sweetheart deal. Let's talk about he's that. He's been indicted Let's by the, more about no, no. the corruption of the Biden Hunter Biden family. was indicted, and he's got a special counsel. This was a special counsel. And then got a sweetheart decision. deal from Joe Biden's I wanna, DOJ. I want to talk about you because I think, you know, in a lot of your public appearances and your public comments and, you know, the resolutions that Republicans are introducing on Capitol Hill that you're a part of, uh, people want to know if you're auditioning to be Donald Trump's vice president. Have you handed over any documents or been a part of any vetting process with the Trump team yet regarding that? I'm proud to be one of the top surrogates for President Trump. Um, I voted for President Trump in 2016. I was proud to work with him. I've worked with him on his impeachment defense team when the, the first witch hunt started against him, perpetrated by the Democrats and Adam Schiff. Uh, and I'm proud to be a top surrogate. I would proud to serve in a future Trump administration, but we have a lot to do. I have a lot of responsibility as the House Republican Conference Chair, and most importantly, as the representative for New York's 21st Congressional District, giving them a seat at the highest level. And we're focused on the issues that matter to the American people. The border crisis, which is raging across our country. House Republicans passed a border security bill. Joe Biden has failed. In fact, he has caused this border well, crisis. Also, I mean, the Republicans then the we Senate. We passed a border bill. Right, one that was never going to pass a Democratic We passed a border bill, and you Senate, and I both know how difficult it has been historically for a border yes, bill to come together. Yes, we just saw what happened with Republicans on Capitol Hill. House Republicans passed on, a border bill that Joe Biden opposed. I want Caitlin. to talk about the, the Biden Vice border President. crisis is because yeah, of Joe Biden's two, executive action. HR2 he is passed, a Democratic president. And, and Joe Biden opposed that. Right, because it was Trump era immigration The reason why policies. he opposed but, it is because he wants a wide open border, which is what his executive actions call. Well, he said he was that willing to, to shut the border down. But and he has the executive authority to do so. He has the executive authority to do so. No, I'm not. Uh, I'd like to return to my question I'm not allowing you to just say something that's president. factually not true. He has the executive authority right now to end catch and release. He has the executive authority right now and to Congress close the border. And Congress has the ability to pass legislation. And we did. And let's talk about the vice presidency, because you just said that you would be willing to serve in a Trump administration. Had you been vice president on January 6, 2021, what would you have done? 
I stood up for the Constitution. I believe no, it was what an would you have done if you were vice president? Okay. I would not have done what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. I specifically uh, stand by what I said on the House floor, and uh, I stand by my statement, which was there so was you unconstitutional would have overreach. The votes. There was unconstitutional constitutional overreach in states like Pennsylvania. And uh, I think it's very important that we continue to stand up for the Constitution and have legal and secure elections, which we did not have in 2020. And m the tens of millions of Americans agree with me, Caitlin. Well, the, I would say the Supreme Court in the state of Pennsylvania said that that Republican passed changes to their law w was constitutional. But it, it's notable to hear you say, given you're in the running to be the vice president, that you would have rejected those votes Come this election, when Vice President Harris is in that position, would you be okay if she rejected the votes if Donald Trump wins? L listen, we need to make sure the election is constitutional and legal. We're talking about Democrats. Legal. It was not, Caitlin. It was unconstitutional when there was circumventing state legislatures, unilaterally changing election law. I stand by my statement on the House floor. And again, tens of millions of Americans agree with that statement and have questions about the validity because and legality. Because Republicans are so in doubt about the election. No, no, no. About, because the American people have rightful questions on the constitutionality. Because Republicans are and so let me, in doubt And let me say it. this for you. When it comes to this election, we are seeing the Democrats trying to remove President Trump from the ballot. That is not constitutional. That is not a legal and safe, secure election. That's literally what's being discussed at the Supreme Court today because radical leftists can't stand the fact that Donald Trump continues to skyrocket in the polls and Joe Biden continues to plummet. Let and when you get outside of CNN, that. if you get outside of CNN and talk to hardworking American people like in my district, like across this country, they want to see new leadership in President Trump. And that's but why he's I, going to win. You deleted a, a statement that was on your website recently calling January 6th a tragic day. Why, why was it deleted, though? I, I have all my public statements from the current Congress. You can access all of my previous public statements. From but why was it deleted from your website? I only have the press releases from this current Congress. All of those statements are available since I was elected on multiple social media accounts, and you can access it there. Just so it like wasn't everyone a retraction can. of what you said? I have every... No, certainly not. I have press releases for this current Congress, and the reality is you as a journalist can go through all of my official social media accounts and find all of my previous statements. The last thing I have to ask you about is... You've referred to the January 6th defendants as hostages. As someone who was in Israel for several weeks after October 7th and met with families of real hostages, don't you find that offensive? I've given those family members of hostages in Israel. We've hosted them at, uh, among House Republicans, and we continue to stand up to make sure Israel has the right to defend itself. And Caitlin, you should be condemning the fact that the President of the United States called into question Israel at his press conference today. Meanwhile, he misunderstood and confused the President of Egypt with the President of Mexico. But I will continue to stand up for Israel's uh, right to defend itself. And yet you have a President of the United States who issued a veto threat. I stand by my statement there, and what people are seeing is an unequal Department of Justice where, on one hand, you have BLM violent You're rioters not who are my not question. You're going off who topic. are not prosecuting. You have BLM violent rot, uh, rioters who are not being prosecuted by the DOJ, and you have nonviolent individuals who were in the Capitol on January 6th but did not commit violent acts who are being prosecuted by the DOJ, being held. That is inherent, you inherently un-American. That's draw inherently un-American. In the criminal defendants and, and the people who were raped and kidnapped into Gaza. I draw. I draw a distinction by the. DOJ, the fact that they refuse to prosecute violent rioters during BLM, and yet they have an unequal set of rules and go after nonviolent individuals on January 6th. CNN continues to struggle because you continue to fail to understand the American people's frustration with this two-tiered set of justice in this country. I don't think that has to do with calling the 
criminal defense. It has to do hostages. with a lot more than that, but that's one aspect Congresswoman of it. Congresswoman Elise Zvonik, thanks for your time tonight. Caitlin, thank you so much. And of course, just ahead, we'll also speak to the Secretary of State of Colorado, Jenna Griswold. She's here to weigh in on what she heard in today's arguments. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. More now on what happened today in court for Donald Trump and what it means for the future of this case as the Supreme Court seemed to be signaling that it is unlikely to allow the state of Colorado to kick him off of its ballot. There are many other legal matters looming large for Donald Trump, of course. The question of whether the Supreme Court takes up the immunity appeal. His team is expected to file their their emergency appeal by Monday's deadline. Also, the four criminal trials that await him. Here tonight, Colorado Secretary of State Janet Greswold, also back with us, Ashley Allison, Doug High, and Ellie Honig. Secretary, let me start with you because I, we don't know how the Supreme Court is going to rule or how soon. Hopefully, we'll find out uh, quickly on that. But what did you make of today's arguments and what we heard from people like Trump's former attorney who believe it was actually a pretty effective day for him? Well, I think it's a significant day for democracy. Uh, we're at the Supreme Court, just steps away from the United States Capitol, where Congress people ran for their lives, where we saw our nation assaulted and our democracy under attack. And it was so striking to me to see Trump continue to lie, to lie about his role in the insurrection, to continue to argue he is above the Constitution and above the law. So I hope the justices see through his lies and recognize that states have historically been able to keep disqualified candidates off of our ballots. But they seem to be making the argument, Justice Kavanaugh specifically when it comes to de democracy, the reverse of that, saying that allowing states to make this decision would be problematic. Well, I, I think uh, one of the things that is potentially problematic is the court's focus on politics. Uh, their focus on the role of one state deciding a presidential election. But ultimately, elections are within the state's jurisdiction to run. Uh, and just like we wouldn't put a non-natural born citizen on the ballot, we also believe that oath-breaking insurrectionists are not qualified. Ellie, what was your, your thought of that, uh, given the arguments that you heard also from the plaintiffs? Yeah, I, I wonder if, if you picked up on what I picked up on listening to the argument. It sounded to me like the justices were saying, this insurrection disqualification is different than age or residency or natural born status because the other three are readily ascertainable. Usually, whereas the question about whether someone engaged in insurrection is highly variable and can change a lot state by state. And they seem to have a concern with that. I wonder what you thought of that line of questioning. You know, honestly, insurrection is not something we see every single day. Uh, some of the attorneys argue that it's an extraordinary event, it, and it is. Uh, I think the justices were indicating that our legal systems do not work, uh, that rogue secretaries of state will be able to basically throw tantrums and, and scream insurrection to keep candidates off the ballot. Uh, and I just don't think that's how it would play out. 
Uh, ultimately, just like in Colorado, we had a five-day trial at district court. There was an appeal to the Colorado Supreme Court, and now we're at the United States Supreme Court. And the justices have all the ability in the world to clearly define what an insurrection is. But that does not, uh, I would say, I would argue, allow them to pretend that, that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not exist. It is there to protect the country from insurrectionists taking office. It's there for this situation with Donald Trump. Was it any concern to you, Secretary, or is it any concern to you that Colorado is essentially alone among the states in having found that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and should be disqualified? Maine is sort of there. Your, your colleague in Maine has made that decision, but it's not in the courts. But there have been two dozen or so of these challenges rejected in blue states, red states, and swing states. Does it concern you that Colorado is sort of out on its own? No, because uh, honestly, it is not atypical for states to have different candidates on the ballot. Uh, outside of this question about Donald Trump, uh, this presidential primary will have a candidate who is not a natural-born citizen on some ballots and not on other states' ballots. Like in Colorado, we said the person's not qualified, he's not on our ballot. Uh, so I, I think that's a typical thing in election administration. And on top of that, uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on, on your premise. Some of the courts that did not uh, disqualify Donald Trump didn't even look at the question. And, and again, in a federalism, it's up to them. Yeah. You're talking about standing considerations. Just one more uh, quick question. Getting, kicking the case out on political reasons. It's a political question. Political We're question. not going to adjudicate. Right. Some of Donald Trump's 2020 election challenges were dismissed on the same basis, however. Um, real quick, your primary, speaking of your primaries, Super Tuesday, May 5th, do you think it's important for the voters of Colorado that they get an answer from the Supreme Court before May, uh, excuse me, March 5th? Uh, absolutely. And uh, on top of that, our ballots go out next week. Uh, we're a vote by mail for all state. We have early voting, drop boxes galore. Uh, I do think it's important that voters know if a vote for Donald Trump is going to count. I also think it's important for the American public to know whether an insurrectionist can take the highest office again. I wonder what you think of this, because you know she referenced there the politics that the court is taking into account. I mean, obviously, they've waded into many politically fraught cases before. I think Justice Clarence Thomas is the only one on the bench who was there during the 2000 Gore, Bush v. Gore. But I wonder what you make of how they're considering it and looking at it through that lens. Well, that was my first election I ever voted in. And so it was it was disappointing to see the Supreme Court decide what I felt like the outcome of an election. And so... Surprisingly, I might be in agreement with Doug tonight, uh, my Republican uh, <laughs> colleague here. I, I don't actually want the court to make this decision to take him off the ballot. I think that it will divide our country. Do I think he is an insurrectionist? Absolutely. And do I think the American people should stand up and say we don't want him? No. Unfortunately, though, the Republican Party is not there and he likely will be the nominee. But that's why it's so important that he is defeated in November, because I don't think an insurrectionist should have the highest hold the highest office. I am just afraid of what will happen if he is removed and his base. They have already you know, said threatening things. And Donald Trump in him, himself has not said he would try and stop the violence if people got upset when um, after the last time he was in court in New York. And also remarkable to hear Elise Stefanik, someone who is on the short list, may not ultimately be picked to be Trump's vice president, presidential candidate if he wins, say that she would not have done what Mike Pence did, that she would have blocked legitimate, credible votes that day, rejected people's valid votes 
when she is certifying over Congress in a ceremonial role. Sure, I think if we've learned one thing about Donald Trump, Ronna Romney McDaniels is learning this this week, is that loyalty to Trump is a one-way street, and Donald Trump doesn't give points. He only takes them away one at a time. And so you have to say whatever Trump, whatever the latest Trumpy answer is, you go that route and you go that route to stay as, as long in Trump Even world as you Even if it's unconstitutional. That, that's, that's the deal that you've made with yourself. And look, every movie, book, and, and play that, we, that we've seen on this topic tells us that when you make a deal with the devil, it comes with a price. There has been a price that a lot of people have paid so far, and obviously others may, may pay that Did price. Did that surprise well. you? I mean, just... Well, I'm still I, just thinking about that moment listen, that she she just openly acknowledged that my, she was My last conversation votes. with Congresswoman Stefanik was in her office in 2016, and she said, we got to stop Donald Trump. He's terrible. Obviously, she, like a lot of Republicans, have uh, seen the light or changed their tune, however you want to define it. Um, but nothing about that then surprises me. This is where the center of gravity for the Republican Party is now. And it's unfortunate, but that's reality. I mean, it, it's not surprising. We literally saw an issue that for president after president after president, people have said we need to solve. And we got so close. Not that the bill um, that was proposed around immigration this this week would have solved the whole immigration problem, but we got so close in the most conservative bill possible. And Donald Trump calls and said... Nope. And it's over. And so that's the world that we are living in right now, that Donald Trump is literally the puppet master around all of these folks who just are looking for a political future and not for people. Everyone stand by. Coming up next here on CNN, we will get back to the breaking news and go to the White House to hear what they believe, how President Biden's impromptu news conference went tonight. CNN's MJ Lee is there and she'll join us alongside Van Jones and David Urban right after a quick break. We're now in President Biden's press conference tonight, hailing the special counsel for sailing, saying he will not charge him with mishandling classified documents and tearing into him for language in his report about his age and mental sharpness. CNN's MJ Lee asked him about it, specifically what voters make of the question. Mr. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Watch Many me. American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? Why, what is your answer to that question? I'm the most question? qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. MJ Lee joins us now. Are you hearing anything from White House uh, or officials or sources with the Biden campaign about how they thought that press conference went? Yeah, you know, one White House official was actually just texting me. Uh, no one can say that isn't a man in command uh, after that press conference. They do generally tend to like it when the president is sort of fired up. Uh, they think that it shows uh, his strength. But uh, Anderson, I think it's clear that he was kind of fuming about this investigations, the conclusion uh, that it drew, the way that it was conducted, some of the questions that Robert Hur asked. You saw the president uh, get particularly uh, worked up when he talked about being asked about the death of his son saying that's none of your business. What does that have to do with uh, all of this? And he clearly also just does not appreciate uh, the fact that the report basically said that he was an elderly man with memory issues. You saw him uh, get very defensive, saying that 
his memory uh, is just fine. He said, I know what the hell I'm doing. Uh, and I think they're just very aware that uh, the repeated references in this report to the president having memory issues, recall issues are only just going to fuel uh, critics who have uh, raised questions about his age, his mental acuity. And you saw there in that exchange when I started asking about that concern uh, shared by American uh, American voters, uh, he immediately cut in and said, that is my opinion. To be clear, that isn't my opinion. That is uh, something that we see consistently in public polling. Uh, but yeah, I think I think there's also the moment where the president didn't do himself any favors by mixing up uh, who the uh, president of Egypt is. He made a reference to the president of Mexico. So uh, all in all, I think uh, the White House clearly wanted to get him out there, wanted him to stay in his own words, uh, sort of a defense of what was in the report. And I think we got uh, just that. Uh, MJ Lee, thank you. Could join me now, CNN senior political commentator and former Trump campaign advisor David Urban, also CNN senior political commentator, former Obama administration official Van Jones. Van, um, did the president do himself any favors tonight? Uh, look, that, that wasn't Joe Biden at his best. But listen, you know, you had Donald Trump uh, couldn't tell the difference between Nikki Haley and, and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you know, people make those mistakes and those kind of things happen. I think uh, the more important thing that people got to remember tonight is that the Supreme Court uh, ducked uh, its opportunity and responsibility to stop this insurrectionist uh, from being able to take advantage of, of, uh, of the situation. If, if Barack Obama had sent 10,000 black men to destroy the Capitol and attack a joint session of Congress, Barack Obama wouldn't be in jail. He'd be on Guantanamo right now, and we wouldn't be talking about Barack Obama at all. We shouldn't even be talking about Donald Trump. He should, he should be facing the same justice anybody else would in this country, and that's the, the real story tonight. David, what is the real story tonight? Wow. <laughs> wow. Like, I usually I usually agree with Van. Uh, you know, we kind of kind of agree on some things. This one, we're 180 degrees out. The story tonight is that Joe Biden is non-compass mentis. America sees it. The special counsel wrote about it. He said, and you know, Ellie talked about this before, um, but for the fact that he is an older, nice old man with a bad memory, they'd have probably brought charge. They'd have probably recommended charges, but they felt that the a jury would, would, wouldn't well, see that. Well, they also said no, he no, well, it's one of the, the reasons. The fact man. that he cooperated was also something that was that's weighed, the main reason. Uh, okay, very... but 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 you know, but, but he but, but he goes but he goes on he goes out at this press conference here and says there was no classified materials disclosed when when he's on tape talking about disclosing classified materials. I mean, it's uh, look, it's, I, it's it's if, it's, if, it, he did if, himself if way more damage. <laughs> Listen, if, if the, the qualification that you now are going to stand by is how well people equip themselves when it comes to uh, being smart and honest about legal situations, I think Donald Trump should be right off the map. Uh, listen, Joe Biden did not do anything remotely as bad as Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, took stuff, stole stuff, hid stuff, lied about it. Uh, Biden uh, turned the stuff over directly. And that's why he's not being prosecuted. And again, this wait, false wait. equivalence between uh, a Joe Biden, who is a law abider, uh, Joe Biden, who is who is competent, he's he's running the country right now, versus Donald Trump, who has memory lapses just like everybody else of that age group, but who also is an insurrectionist and steals stuff. It's it's ridiculous. I, I would encourage I would encourage all the viewers to go read the document, read the document yourself. Maybe turn to page sixty-one, where a junior military officer working for working for the vice president at the time says, "I don't feel comfortable with the classified material contained in the notes. Please don't involve me in anything going forward with this project." Taking herself out, she said, "I can't argue because I'm a junior officer." There, are people clearly knew things were going wrong here, and they wanted to get themselves out of the blast zone. This is this is going to get worse before it gets better. 
So, Van, I mean, the president obviously, look, you know, he is who he is. He is the age he is. And the way he speaks is the way he speaks or misspeaks sometimes. What do you see? What does this campaign look like to you between these two uh, men? Uh, it is, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think most Americans want to see this match up. We've said over and over again, the vast majority of Americans don't want to see Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden part three, part seven, you know, the, the repeats. The, 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 nobody wants to see this, but it's where we are. And I got to tell you, uh, if Joe Biden focuses on what he's been able to accomplish, uh, which is if right now, if he were to retire right now, he'd be on Mount Rushmore. When you look at what he's done on climate, what he's done uh, pulling us out of, the, of this uh, economic tailspin, when you look at what he's done, even on stuff people forget about, marriage equality, uh, anti-Asian violence, you go down the list, the accomplishments of, of, of Joe Biden with the narrowest of, of majorities is extraordinary. And if you look at, at where he's trying to take the country versus where Trump wants to take the country with his, with his revenge tour and his promise of dictatorship, there's no contest. David, how do you see? I mean, we're, we're yeah. I was going to say, and unfortunately, the polling doesn't show that, Van. The polling doesn't show right track, wrong track. Americans believe the country's on a wrong track. They believe they're worse off now than they were four years ago. Biden's Partially popularity is at a presidential all-time low. Oh, because of hey, Donald listen. Trump? Yeah, no, no listen. <laughs> I, I think you're going to be surprised. I think, I think listen, we, you might disagree with me on this one, David. I think some of this right track, wrong track stuff has to do with the level of chaos that people feel and fear that people feel that there's a part of the country that just seems to be going off the rails in some kind of a almost cult-like worship of somebody who's got 91 felony charges and looks like a runaway train toward the White House. So I think that some of the discontent in the country isn't about the sitting president. It's about fear of the, of the potential of a next president, yeah, Trump. I, 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 I think you're misreading that part, Van. I think there's 75 million Americans plus that feel that the country's on the wrong track because of the current occupant of the White House, not the previous occupant. Well, you know, David, Biden was, I mean, he was obviously criticized for his handling of the classified documents in the, in the special counsel report. The special counsel, who is a former Trump appointee, also said that what former President Trump did was worse. So I know you're saying this is bad for Biden, but it, it's, is it really a gain politically for the former president? Anderson, the he, reason and who, I, by the I, way, I is a, listen, I if, mean, if, could stand trial if, for this. Right. If you're if you're keeping score on on the legal merits. Right. I think it's a wash. Right. Because um, the American voters are going to say it, it is going to be an equivalence here. They're going to say, well, Biden had documents. People said it was bad. What, what this what this what this report really shines a light on is the fact that you see. The, 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 for, the current president not remembering pretty key dates, not necessarily uh, the, the, the situation with his son, but when he became when he became vice president. When was I was I vice president then? He asked the special counsel. I mean, those are pretty hey, David, significant miles in your life to remember. I mean, was there a reason remember. to put those details? I mean, look, I, in conversations, I'm like, yeah, you asked me what year did I start at <laughs> CNN? I, I would stumble. <laughs> I think it was like two, uh, 2001, 2002. Well, Anderson. <laughs> I do, I do believe, I do believe there's a reason he put him in there. I think he put it in there to, to support his claim that one of the reasons I'm not bringing, I'm not recommending there be charges brought when the president leaves, is because his lack of memory now is pretty bad, and it will be even worse in a year or so from now when he's not president. And so one of the reasons I'm not recommending there be prosecution brought is because he'll be seen as a nice, kind, older gentleman with a bad memory. Mm. He, he says it clearly. Van, did it seem gratuitous to you? Uh, it, it, it maybe seemed a, a little bit gratuitous, but again, I'm sitting here and this is some kind of bizarre nightmare mirror, uh, it was like a black mirror episode where we're sitting here talking about a, a, a president 
who is literally doing the job right now. The country seems to be functioning. And meanwhile, the Supreme Court apparently is going to duck out on the opportunity to do their job. This is the Supreme Court, by the way, that when it comes to women's rights over their bodies, is happy to throw a president in a garbage can and attack 100 million women, take diversity off of campuses, take voting rights away from people, gut, this, gut clean, clean water. But when it comes time to disenfranchise one guy who is a clear insurrectionist, they are running for the exits. Donald Trump is playing right. chicken Man, with our with our institutions, it's a and they keep swerving away. It's going to be a nine zero opinion. We got to go. Van Jones, David Irwin. It's going to be a nine zero opinion. Most people yeah, we'll seem see. to agree with that. Uh, next on that note, uh, looking ahead at today's historic Supreme Court arguments, the skepticism many justices exhibited toward Colorado's case and how they may rule, as David Irwin said, is going to be nine zero. We'll see. We'll talk uh, to others ahead in a moment. During today's Supreme Court argument, Justice Samuel Alito spoke of the potential consequences of siding with Colorado or the former president, not just for the presidential ballot in that state, but in all 50 states. I don't see what is gained by using this term, which is used in different contexts, rather than directly addressing what's involved here, which is the question of who can enforce Section 3 with respect to a presidential candidate. Uh, the consequences of what the Colorado Supreme Court did, uh, some people claim, would be quite severe. Uh, would it not permit, uh, would it not lead to the possibility that other states would say, using their choice of law rules and their rules on, uh, on uh, collateral estoppel, that there's non-mutual collateral estoppel against former President Trump. And so the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court could effectively decide this question for many other states, perhaps all other states. Could it not lead to that consequence? I'm joined now by Jeffrey Tubin, former federal prosecutor and author of countless bestsellers, who I'm hoping knows what collateral estoppel means, including the nine uh, inside the, excuse me, the book, The Nine, Inside the, uh, the Secret World of the Supreme Court. Also, Elizabeth Griffin, former Trump Communications White House, White House Communications Director. Um, so, Jeff, what, is Alito, what was Alito's point there? Well, let's just, in terms of the argument itself, you know, Jason Murray uh, represented um, Colorado. And I would say his argument was somewhere between a calamity and a disaster. Wow. It was everything he was selling they weren't buying. He didn't do a bad job. Uh -huh. It's just that every argument, you know, whether Trump was covered uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, whether Colorado had the right to, to do this, whether Colorado had the, used the right procedures, the argument that Justice Alito was making there, it was related to an argument Chief Justice Roberts made at another time, which was, what happens with other states? Do other states feel they're bound by Colorado and they have to throw uh, Trump off the ballot. That's what Alito meant by collateral estoppel. Yeah. Chief Justice Roberts was made the point. What happens when red states start throwing Biden off the ballot? I mean, is that the kind of arms race we want to... I thought maybe Justice Sotomayor votes for Colorado, but it looked like eight to one or nine to nothing mm. for me. And what it means in real terms is Donald Trump's going to be on the ballot in 50 states, period. 
And that's the gist of it. Listen, I think it's important that this decision come down quickly, but more important that the question over presidential immunity comes down quickly. I think that the country's in a bit of denial that we're having the rematch from hell that nobody wants. Seven in 10 Americans didn't want a Trump versus Biden rematch. But that is the simple reality right now. And voters have a right to know to, you, well, first, we need the case to be able to move forward with it, can't till right. we have till we have this immunity decision. But they deserve to know before election day if he's a convicted felon. And there is a possibility with all the delay tactics he can pull that they very well may not. And I would also say there's also a possibility Donald Trump could be a convicted felon and still win. I think we have to be open eyed to the the weaknesses of both of these two major party candidates. Don, the, the immunity case yeah, which was just decided by the D.C. Circuit or um, was that this week? Gosh, it, it yes. all happened so fast. Um, that is in many respects more important than this case. Because even if somehow Colorado won, the only states that would be throwing, throwing him off were states Biden, uh, Trump wasn't going to win anyway. Immunity could decide whether Donald Trump goes on trial in Washington. How, so what are the steps on that? Well, next week, uh, the Supreme Court is going to have to decide whether they issue a stay. And that's really almost more important than the outcome of the ultimate appeal. If they issue a stay, that means it, it's delayed. That means that um, Judge Chutkin, who is presiding right. in Washington, depending on how the stay is written, but it probably means that she can't do anything until the Supreme Court decides um, the case, which would probably be June. And, and then it really becomes impossible, especially if Trump is tried in New York, as it looks like he will be on March 25th, to stack up, even and given if, the gravity of it, the Supreme Court wouldn't rule on that sooner than June. You know, they take their time. They 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 they, they, they don't rush. And I keep mean, in mind the political calendar as well. July is obviously the Republican convention. There's always sort of these tendencies to not want to pursue things in a highly political season. If this does not move quickly, it very well couldn't be solved by election. Before day. we leave the Supreme Court, just one more point we haven't mm -hmm. talked about yet. What in the world was Clarence Thomas doing hearing this case? His wife was intimately involved in the issue of insurrection, which is the which was the subject of this. The fact that he has not recused himself and the fact that no one can do anything about that, because the, basically the Supreme Court has said, unless you want to impeach us, we're, we're free to do whatever we want. It is outrageous that he didn't recuse himself in this case. It is remarkable the standards that the Supreme Court has for themselves. I mean, they, they apparently can receive vans and, and trips and all sorts of gifts. It's the honor system. Yeah. Jeffrey Tupin and Elizabeth Griffin, thanks so much. Coming up, another huge political story tonight. The third official contest in the Republican presidential race is underway right now. Nevada's 26 delegates up for grabs in tonight's caucuses. John King breaks it down for us next. Nikki Haley got a lot of grief this week when she came in second in a one-person race. That was the Republican Nevada primary. Tonight, it's the Republican Nevada caucus, which is currently underway and where there are actually delegates at stake. Two different races, and I should note, Nikki Haley is not on the ballot tonight, but former President Donald Trump is, and state party rules there forbid candidates from being in both. John King is here to break down that confusion in the caucus, if you can understand that. John, uh, can you just explain how Republicans got here and what you're watching for tonight? Right, so let's explain the race first in general, the big race, and then the 
peculiarities, let's call it that, of Nevada. Uh, we have Iowa, that's Trump. We have New Hampshire, that's Trump. He's 2-0. That has not happened in modern times. So now we're out in Nevada tonight. Uh, no votes yet. The polls there are closed, 10.30. So a little more than 30 minutes from now, uh, the caucuses will close. And we expect to get some results pretty quickly. Uh, 26 delegates at stake. If you come back, Caitlin, to where we are, look, the, the race for the nomination can be about two things. It can be about momentum. Trump has that. Or it can be about delegates. Trump has that. Very early in the count right now, but you see there's 26 delegates at stake tonight in Nevada. Uh, Trump is expected to get all of them. Uh, so he will add that to his thing. You mentioned Tuesday night. Let's just go back and look at it. Uh, there were no delegates at stake here. Donald Trump was not on the ballot. It was Nikki Haley versus none of the above, none of these candidates. Uh, she says it was meaningless, and it was in terms of the math. In terms of that other thing I was talking about, momentum, she hoped to just see this fill in yellow so she could say there are voters out there who want me to be president of the United States. So this, uh, no, it doesn't affect any delegate math, but it did not help. So again, if you come back to where we are now, uh, one, two, and three. If Donald Trump wins the first three, wins the first three, then we go to South Carolina. And then what, what does Nikki Haley do from there? A flip side from 2020, remember Joe Biden lost the first three and then he won South Carolina. Republican races are different. The times are different. However, if you're Nikki Haley and Donald Trump is 3-0, and you better win. So what does that mean if Donald Trump's getting these delegates tonight? I mean, how much harder does that make that path for Nikki Haley, who is still in this race, to get the nomination? She's raising a lot of money, Caitlin. She says she's going to stay in the race regardless of what happens in South Carolina. But let's take this on a day-to-day -day basis. You've covered campaigns. You know how it works. Just to go back in time to 2016. Remember, Donald Trump was new on the scene then. And he still won 44 of the 46 South Carolina counties. You see the lighter red? That's Marco Rubio there and Marco Rubio down here. I'm just back from a trip to South Carolina. Uh, they like Nikki Haley, but they love Donald Trump. That's her problem. And so what is her, you're in South Carolina, you're talking to voters as you have been for the last several weeks. What's next for her? Well, again, can she pull it off here? The biggest challenge here, she has two, two big challenges. She has to convince a lot of people who are planning to vote for Donald Trump, please don't do that. Reconsider my argument. I'm more electable. Uh, he has chaos. All, all of those things we've heard familiarity. Can she do this in the state where she was born, where she was twice elected governor? The challenge is she hasn't been on the ballot in 10 years, and Donald Trump has won South Carolina three times since then. The 2016 primary, the 2020 uh, general, uh, 2016 general election, then the 2020 general election. So can she convince enough people to change their mind? Or, Caitlin, can she, as she says she's trying to do, get Democrats and independents to flood the South Carolina primary? It's mathematically possible. Historically, though, it has just never happened. And if you go 0 and 4, come back to the 2024 map, if you go 0 and 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, then yes, she says she's going to go on to Super Tuesday, but just, yes, she has some money, but I mean, it's Donald Trump's party. You have to prove it isn't. You have, the only way to prove that is by winning somewhere. John King at the map. Thank you. And the news continues here on CNN. America's Choice 2024, the Nevada caucuses with Abby Phillip and Laura Coates starts right now. Grief is a human experience and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.